This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Brad Matheson grew up in Sandy, Utah, as the 10th of 11 children. After serving his mission in Paraguay, Brad married his high school love, Tiffany. Brad has a bachelor's degree in marketing and an MBA from BYU and has worked in the behavioral healthcare industry for 20 years. Brad and his wife, Tiffany, live in Washington, Utah with their three children. They enjoy living in an area so full of outdoor opportunities. You'll often find Brad on the golf course with his two boys, on the tennis court with his daughter, or reading a good book. I'm Tara McCausland. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast, and welcome, Brad. It's good to be with you. I, I told Brad, uh, I gave him probably the hardest topic that we've had thus far. And I really appreciated podcast. that. <laughs> so he's, he's a really good sport to be with me this evening. We're going to dive into some interesting and I think important discussion tonight. But before we dive into that. I always like to ask questions about what has built a testimony. I think remembering spiritual experiences is so key to keeping us anchored in our faith. And so for you, if you were to point to a single experience that has shaped your testimony, what would it be? You know, as I, as I think about that, there's really two experiences that I always go back to. Um, the first is a very simple one, a 14-year-old boy at youth conference, right? Uh, on trek, an opportunity to, to go away and be away from the noise and the distraction um, and taking a time to have a solo moment with God. And uh, you know, there was just one thing I wanted to know on that trek and it was that I had a heavenly father that loved me. If I could understand just that one concept, uh, I would have, I feel like it would have been a success um, I had that moment um, as I was uh, just kneeling by myself on the side of a mountain. And, um, I, you know, I always go back to just that very, very basic concept of, is there a God and does he know me? Um, and so that was, that was really a turning point for my teenage years. And then um, this, the other moment that I, I think I would go back to was really through a trial. Um, and it was when we lost uh, a baby. Uh, she was born um, with several uh, different challenges. Uh, she lived for about an hour. And uh, it was in that moment, in those moments where uh, we knew there was struggle, we knew it was gonna, uh, going to happen, that uh, the tender mercies that came in those moments were uh, kind of, well, they're very sacred, right? They were uh, moments where you knew that there, there was somebody with you and that there was a lot more going on than, than just uh, what we were experiencing uh, on earth, if you will. And it was a, it was a joining moment for, for Tiffin and myself. And we, uh, we really uh, came to know not only each other differently, uh, but that, that concept of the triangle, right, with God in a marriage, 
um, I think that probably solidified that uh, through one of the more difficult times uh, that we've ever experienced. So uh, mm-hmm. I think those are, those are the moments where if you're looking for God, you'll find him. If you're looking to blame God, you won't. And um, I am very blessed to have a wife that turns to God for everything and that has such a strong testimony of her Heavenly Father. And um, I mean, really, in a moment that could have been so difficult, it was heaven on earth. That's so interesting that you describe such a difficult time as heaven on earth. I, I was just speaking with a friend who lost their spouse, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the dichotomy that he's mm-hmm. experienced. Paradox. Yeah, yeah. of just the, the deep sense of loss, the pain, but also these months later, joy. He's been remarried, and and he knows that his deceased wife is still working mm-hmm. in their lives, and and he is happy. So I just think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. We can find God in all things, yeah. but we have to look for him, and it can either build testimony or break testimony yeah. depending on how we choose to respond. It's interesting how um, the Lord uses you as well. Um, there's so much support and so much suckering through the Spirit that if you're looking to God and you find those tender mercies, it's interesting how you become the comforter to other people. Um, it was one of the most interesting pieces that uh, we always had you know, members of the ward or other family members that would come and say, how are you guys holding up through all of this so well? Uh, you know, saying that they could never do what, what we were doing. And yet for us, it was just, it, it was a, a sense of um, the spirit kind of working through us, right? And, and giving us opportunities to, to teach or be an example or, or even just, just show that there is a way that you can get through these types of trials differently. And, um, and coming to a willingness of, of turning your life over to your heavenly father and saying, we'll go through this, just make sure you're there for us while we do it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think we've reaped the blessings of that for many, many years. And, and every year on her birthday, our kids celebrate it. And, and it's, a, it's a piece of who this family has become. So That's really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Now, I failed to mention uh, at the beginning that this is our third episode in our Anchors of Faith series within this podcast. I've invited Brad to talk about one of my very favorite things, which is Living Prophets and Revelation, which on the onset doesn't sound maybe super interesting, (laughs) but um, there's a lot of nuance and complexity when it comes to uh, being a member of a living church with imperfect men and women who are at the helm (laughs) right (laughs) Um, at all levels at all levels (laughs) from top to bottom and i recall conversations with people on my mission who believed strongly that prophets were a thing of the past and unneeded because when christ came he fulfilled the law and we have scripture why do why do we need prophets what would your response be to a person who said, we don't need prophets, we we've have got, our We've got it all. So whenever I, I hear this, 
this question of, of why profits now versus, you know, we've got it all, the, you know, it all ended when, when Christ fulfilled the law is usually how they kind of uh, discuss this. My mind goes immediately to this uh, talk by Hubie Brown back in 1955 uh, called Profile of a Prophet. You can find it online. It's a wonderful uh, talk about an experience he had with a gentleman from, um, he was actually in uh, England's House of Commons, so very learn, learned man. And uh, they were having a, a discussion about this very thing. Why? Why prophets now? Like, revelation has stopped. That was his, that was his take. And Hubie Brown um, kind of took a little different approach. He asked some very poignant questions. Because uh, he was, this gentleman was really looking at, give me a reason. Why, why, would, why would the Lord need to talk to prophets uh, to, in order to help us? And uh, so the questions that Hubie Brown offered this gentleman actually give us a really good way to respond. Um, he started with God stopped, or maybe he lost the power. Did God lose the ability to talk to man? Uh, of course, this gentleman's response was that would be blasphemous, right? Like there's, God is all-knowing and all-powerful and, and can do whatever he needs to do. Okay, so that kind of took that, that discussion to, you know, to an end quickly. Um, maybe he stopped because he doesn't care anymore. He doesn't love us enough. If he, if he talked to, the, to man in Moses' day and, in, and to Abraham, uh, he showed love, he showed compassion, um, he taught. Maybe he doesn't care anymore. Of course, we know that that wouldn't be, be the case. The next question is maybe he stopped because we don't need him anymore. Maybe man's knowledge and understanding is so great that we just don't need a heavenly father or God anymore. And th this gentleman's response was, was clear. I'll just read this response. He says, Mr. Brown, again, this is 1955. Take, take that into account. Mr. Brown, there never was a time in the history of the world when the voice of God was needed as it is needed now. Perhaps you can tell me why he doesn't speak. Uh, Brother Brown's response was, he does speak. He has spoken, but men need faith to hear him. And, you know, as you put that into context, right, like there's all these questions that we can ask in terms of why does he speak? Why do we need the Lord to speak? And I think as you look at the world today, there has never been a time where a living prophet could be more helpful in the lives of individuals throughout the world than right now. Um, the chaos, the... The, the non-truth that is out there, so much on both sides. You just cannot find truth in so many, in so many things. Uh, to have a voice that says, here is truth, is, is an anchor that we can't ignore. I love it. And actually, as you were reading that, I was thinking, I have heard that before. And I love that exchange. I think sometimes one of the best ways to respond to people who maybe don't agree with our beliefs um, or have different opinions on things mm -hmm. is to follow up with a question, um, which was really brilliant on I his have a, part. I have a brother that taught me very well early on that if you must speak, ask a question. Mm. And uh, it's a powerful exchange when you can ask the right question. Mm -hmm. Well, and as you were talking, what immediately comes to mind 
when we talk about having scripture, which we appreciate and love, and we, we know that that is a, a core part of our faith, um, I think of Joseph Smith's experience mm-hmm. when he was trying to find truth, and there was just there were so many different ways of interpreting scripture that there was mm-hmm. no way to know who was right, right, just simply based on interpretation of scripture. So I am so grateful in this chaotic, I mean, 2020 has been such a doozy. <laughs> Continues to be. Continues to be. I know. I keep wondering what's going to happen the next day because it's been so crazy. Something. But certainly, I think if if there was ever a time where we needed a living oracle, someone who can tell us what God wants us to hear, it is now. It is is today. And that is evident to me. The older I get, the more I need to hear the living prophet speak. We've often heard this familiar statement. In regards to a prophet, this is from President Wilfred Woodruff. He said, I say to Israel, the Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of the church to lead you astray. It is not in the program. It is not in the mind of God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this quote come up and people say, but how is it that prophets obviously make mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a fair question. So how do we reconcile the fact that we know that prophets aren't perfect, they are men, and they will make mistakes, but still put our full confidence and trust in them? Um, I think there's a couple of things that, that come to mind with that in terms of uh, the expectations of members, right? And we have to keep our expectations in check. I think that's a, an important a skill that has to be uh, learned over time. Uh, there's two things. One, expectations are the enemy of gratitude, right? If the more we expect, the less grateful we become. And then uh, as we uh, start to see, you know, where our expectations lead us, then we have to really step back and say, okay, what is, what is a prophet really? What are, what are they called to do? And um, ultimately, the prophets, the apostles, they have really one calling, and that's to bring souls to Christ. And ultimately, that's the mission of the church. And anything outside of that, which is all based on the atonement, anything outside of that is really just either policy, which is geared towards just making it through a worldly existence, right? Or um, even could go into culture. And I think there's, we'll talk a little bit more about that, I think, as we go through this. But uh, so understanding that, that the mission of the church is to bring souls to Christ, then we can start to look at, okay, as the prophet guides and is teaching, anything outside of that, what does it mean for me? Because really, uh, as we look at what the, what the prophet talks about, um, when he is speaking as a prophet, it is always bringing us to Christ. Uh, and I, that's, for me, that's, that's kind of the key indicator, right? As we, as we look at all of the decisions that they make, that those brethren make, it is constant and it's a moving target. The world is, uh, really is in chaos, they are moving at a, at a speed that, even though it feels slow sometimes as members of the church, it's actually very, very quick because they're dealing with a worldwide church more than they ever have. Um, I think, you know, 
a lot of us that have been born and raised in Utah and we have this kind of uh, set mindset in a lot of ways of what the church is, we need to kind of get out and see the whole, the whole big picture of what, what the Lord is really trying to do with the global church at this point. Secondly, with this concept of an imperfect, imperfect men, right, guiding the, the church, uh, and yet we revere them as prophets, seers, and revelators, uh, I think there is a very tight correlation to why we served in the church. Uh, because the more you serve in the church, you, you, the more you realize that we are all just trying to, one, keep our head above water, and two, do as good as we can. I think it would only be fair for everyone to experience being an auxiliary president for at least a month. Yeah. And then expectations would be... Yeah. <laughs> It changes everything. <laughs> it really does. Um, I remember when I was w- was first called as a bishop, uh, we had a brand new ward, so we were starting from scratch, and the Relief Society had a, uh, a special activity, uh, kind of in those first few weeks to get to know everybody. And so during this activity, there was a question and answer opportunity, and of course, they wanted to ask, you know, my wife Tiffany some very specific questions and. And one sister, you know, excitedly went at her and said, what is it like to be married to the bishop? And it totally took her back. She was like, had never thought about it like that. (laughs) And she really didn't know what to respond. There's probably a lot of really funny responses you can come up to with that. Uh, But her response was pretty telling. She just said, he's just Brad. And I think uh, it made me kind of think and contemplate with all of these leaders, right? What made President Nelson not just Russell anymore, right? When he was first called into some auxiliary, some presidency, whatever it was, um, his wife was probably just thinking, he's just Russell. Um, But over time, and experience, and learning, and making mistakes, and growing from those mistakes and changing, he became more and more and more. And when we talk about line upon line, precept upon precept, that's exactly what we're talking about. Uh, that these, all of these men and women started with just who they are. And the biggest difference between who they have become and many of us in the church is that they said yes repeatedly that every time they were asked, it was yes. And as they developed the ability to to take an opportunity to learn themselves while they were serving, they grew and their understanding grew and their relationship with Christ grew. And and that ultimately is why we have the, I think why the church is set up the way it is, for us to serve and sacrifice and learn and make mistakes, um, we've all done it. We've all been there. And we look back and we go, oh, if I would have only. And yet, at the same time, in the moment, we are doing the best we can. And, and I think that's actually what makes the church strong. Uh, it's actually what I believe is the refiner's fire in many ways for, for many of us, is to work with imperfect members going through an existence where we're almost forced to relate with people that we would normally not relate with, that we would normally not even interact with. 
And all of a sudden we are put into circumstances where we have to serve and together or uh, sacrifice together. And we learn to love differently. And it's the same process that our Heavenly Father works with us. He's working with very imperfect people. And yet he loves and he teaches and he learns with us. So. Mm-hmm. And so for someone who might question they see the imperfection in a leader, whether on a ward level, stake level, or a general level, mm-hmm. and perhaps they disagree with a, a doctrine or a policy that's been put mm-hmm. in place. And we'll get, be getting into this about, you know, things change in a living mm-hmm. church. Um, and we know that there have been statements made in the past by prophets that were later uh, denounced. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I feel like it's a fair question when people say, you know, I see the imperfection of these people. How can I put my full trust in them that what they are telling me now won't lead me astray? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, it's a, I think it's a valid question. I think it's a valid question for all of us mm-hmm. to contemplate a little bit um, and to at least uh, push ourselves, right, into, okay, what... What is it that, what is my foundation, right? Where is my foundation? And I think as members of the church, oftentimes we, we hesitate in saying, um, I, even, even as we're talking to people about the church, we hesitate to say we're, we're Christians or that my foundation is in Christ or even to use the language that Christians use, mm-hmm. which is very strong in terms of what their belief is and who their foundation is and who their salvation is in. And have they been saved? I think in our hearts, that's where, that's where we need to go. And as we do that, I think what we, what we can do or what we can uh, start to see is uh, the bigger picture. And we, uh, for me, uh, Tiff and I were talking about this. Um, we, we, in our family, try to keep things very, very simple and not overthink too much. That when you really look at the, again, going back to the mission of the church, it's to, to bring souls to Christ. And that's what I need to think of when I think of the church and when I think of prophets and when I think of my rela- relationship with my Savior. It's how am I getting closer to Him? And put my faith in that and in the doctrine, which is very simple when you take it all, when you take all the policy and all the, the culture away the doctrine is very simple, and it is about our relationship with the Savior, that he atoned for our sins, that we have a way back to him, and that there are specific ordinances that will help us get there. And if, if we could all just step back and say, what is the next ordinance I need to prepare for? Our lives would be totally different. Um, all of that, all of those discussions would be kind of melted away into, well, my next ordinance is the sacrament next week. How am I preparing for that in my life this week? Um, or maybe I'm getting ready to go to the temple and that's my next saving ordinance. Uh, all of a sudden, all of that, all of those changes and all of the, the policy and everything else kind of melts away and we start to see that, that Christ is making something of us if we can just keep it simple. I love it. 
And I do really think that as we focus on and understand the mission of the church, which is to bring people to Christ and to help God in his overarching purpose, which is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man, the church is doing it. And the prophet is always speaking to those points. And so I think you're absolutely right. We, We get sidetracked and distracted by imperfection but that is the hallmark of this life and prophets as you said are no different it's line upon line precept upon precept even for them it really is the beauty of the church i mean i think this is so on our on our minds because president nelson has been so aggressive in in terms of his not only vision of what we need to be doing but in terms of those things that we, he felt like needed to change or that needed to be a little bit different. Um, and a lot of those things are in policy and procedures, if you want to use the vernacular. Um, but ultimately, if we look at the mission of the church, it doesn't matter if we're calling the 11 and 12-year-olds beehives or if we're just calling them 11 and 12-year-olds. It's longer, but other than that, it you know those types of things don't... We don't need to get hung up on... Why do we have to make these changes? What we have to get hung up on is what, where's the ordinance? Where's the doctrine? And how am, I, how am I getting closer to my Savior? There was one story that I wanted to just briefly share in summary that I found that I think makes this point very well, just to kind of top off this um, particular question. Um, are you familiar with Carl G. Mazur? He tells a story that on one occasion he was going with a group of young missionaries across the Alps and they were crossing a high mountain pass on foot. There were long sticks stuck into the snow of the glacier to mark the path so that the travelers could find their way safely across the glacier and down the mountain on the other side. And when they reached the summit, Brother Mazur wanted to just teach these young elders a lesson. He stopped at the pinnacle of the mountain and pointed to those sticks that they had followed. And he said, brethren, behold the priesthood of God. They are just common old sticks, but it's the position that counts. Follow them and you will surely be safe. Stray from them and you will surely be lost. He goes on to say, and so it is in the church. We are called to leadership positions and given the power of the priesthood. And we are just common old sticks but the position we are given counts. It is separate and apart from us, but while we hold it, we hold it. I love that. Common old sticks. Common common old sticks. I feel like a common old stick right now. Well, I I wouldn't call you a common old stick. I wouldn't call President Nelson a common old stick. However, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. I know that the mantle given is real to the prophet and to the twelve and those who serve in the church. And as we respect that mantle, and as we allow ourselves to be led by these men in perfection, in all of its glory, there is safety in following those communal sticks. Now, we didn't put this in your bio, and I don't want to embarrass you, Brad, but there's a reason why I chose Brad to talk about this subject. Can you just kind of give us a, a snapshot of what your priesthood leadership callings have looked like for the past... 20 years. 20 years. Um, yeah, I, uh, I had kind of, uh, you know, as we were first married, young men's president, and 
kind of executive secretary in a, a couple of bishoprics. And, and I was first called into a bishopric um, at 26. Uh, my oldest son was six months old. I didn't sit with him for the next uh, 16 years. Uh, and um, so I had a couple of opportunities to, to serve in a high council and uh, executive secretary and to a wonderful state presidency. Um, and then um, another bishopric, and then was called to be bishop, and am now in, in the high council. So, so I, I said to Brad, he's been like eternally in a bishopric or like stake calling <laughs> in Pretty his close. adult years. Um, and so you've gotten an insider's look into how revelation is received. But can you share a bit more how your experience there? Um, might apply to how we can understand how the the church at large might receive revelation, the general leaders mm-hmm. of the church might receive revelation, and, and how we can trust that. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, I think there's a couple of um, there's a couple of maybe even types of revelation that we could look at, right? Um, because you know, there's there's callings, there's things that in, af- affect us very cl- intimately or closely in our daily lives, uh, receiving a calling would be one of those things where I think a lot of people are always wondering, like, what was the bishop thinking? Or is this really revelation? Or is this just the bishop trying to, you know, fill a calling in the nursery, which I've lobbied for for many years. Um, <laughs> and um, I think there's, uh, there's some things that are, that are important to understand with that. I remember, uh, you know, in terms of a personal experience, I remember getting a call from the uh, state president uh, who called Tiff and, and me in uh, to talk, right? That's always the, you just need to talk. And um, I had just just received the um, letter of acceptance for an MBA program at BYU and, and um, was starting a new company at the time. And uh, the state president called us in and, and with all sorts of excitement, and he's a wonderful man, one of my best friends, uh, said, you know, we're calling you to the high council. And I said, yes, and time out. Let me tell you what is happening in my, in my life so that you know. And uh, we talked about, you know, everything that was going on. Um, two, you know, children under three, um, just growing our family, going back to school, starting a new company. Uh, it was going to be a crazy time in our life. And, and we explained this, and, and he very lovingly listened, and uh, kind of with that little smirk in his eye. And uh, he then said, that's fantastic. This will be a great addition <laughs> to, to, to everything you have going on. And, and proceeded to tell me what my assignment would be. And, and we said yes. And, and we, we really wondered um, at that point in our life. We were young. We were just starting our family. We were um, busy. I mean, to say the least, we were stretched, uh, extremely thin. And, um, and those two years, um, about, I guess it was about eight months later, he called me as his exec- executive secretary. So we went from kind of busy to busier uh, to some, in some degree. And, um, and yet... Tiff and I look back on those two years, probably the toughest two years of our, uh, of our marriage in terms of just life, right? Just being in the thick of it. And yet it showed us in a very, very clear way what we could handle. Uh, 
that we could, we could do so much more than we thought we could, if that makes sense. Um, you know, 10 years later when I was called to be a bishop, it felt like a breeze, if that makes any sense at all. I mean, I, I say that very carefully because it was not easy. But comparatively speaking, we were in a different time in our life and, um, and the Lord had, show, had shown us what we could handle in, in that time of our life and that we could do so much more than, than we ever thought we could. And, you know, we, we questioned revelation. There is no question that we, there was that moment where we were like, is that right, really? Like, there's no way. And, and yet, as we persevered and sacrificed and just kind of went through the, the motions even at times where it wasn't pretty, but we went through the motions, um, the Lord taught us uh, some very, very critical, critical lessons that we held on to and, and still hold on to in our life and look back and go, we don't remember a whole lot that happened in those two years, but we know what we can do and we know what the Lord is making of us. And so I think uh, at times if we trust the revelation or the inspiration, whatever you wanna call it, and we go with it, um, the Lord starts to make something of us that we can't do any other way. Um, I think, so then if you look at, you know, you look at those callings, and I think a lot of members struggle with that, with, with the concept of a calling, because uh, oftentimes uh, it, you don't have enough information to make the decision, the, the right calling to, to somebody. And, uh, and we know that information is 80% or 90% of revelation, right? We need to study and, and learn. And so I think um, trusting is, is a big piece. It's that faith piece for sure. Um, from, the, from the flip side, so then if we move into, okay, now you're a leader or now you're seeking revelation or you're looking at, at the prophets and, and apostles and what, they're, what they are receiving, I think there, there is a, an understanding that they have, um, just that line upon line, that puts them into a place where revelation really does come through uh, their mind and their heart just as part of who they are. President Nelson, I mean, there's so many uh, times where we've, we've heard his stories of waking up in the middle of the night and writing things down. And, and um, it, that takes a lot of sacrifice in and of itself because I'm not waking up at three o'clock in the morning to, to write anything down. But, um, but it's, it's become a part of who he is. It's become a part of uh, his, his ongoing mental and emotional and physical being is to connect with heaven. And, and I think that, that that piece is, what if we could all get there, it would be really nice. But um, as leaders, that's what you're looking for. Um, and it comes in, in different ways, I think, with different individuals. It's, it's part of who we're becoming, and we have to learn how to receive it and how to act upon it. And I mean, I remember moments as a bishop, I mean, when, when somebody comes into your office as a bishop and you have no idea what's coming at you. And I mean, that's one of those moments where you're just like, please, like I wanna help and I have no idea what's coming, at, coming to me right now. And when it starts to, to unfold and your mind goes blank for a minute and, and you have to take that extra moment to be still, um, if, if you're willing to go with it, if you're willing to just be okay with, the, uh, with being uncomfortable and 
and allowing that space for the spirit to kind of settle in, um, I think that's when revelation really starts to, to become real. I remember standing up at a whiteboard um, with a member uh, who was really needing something, and I didn't know exactly what. I had, and I was standing in front of a whiteboard ready to, to talk about something, and I had no idea what I was going to talk about. I literally thought in my mind, I don't know what I'm going to say. And, um, and I just wrote a couple of words on the board. And all of a sudden, I was taught. I was taught in a moment um, that was somewhat surreal. It was, it was coming, it was flowing, if that makes sense at all. And it was exactly what this individual needed. And yet, in a lot of ways, I had never even thought about those, those teachings before. And I, I reflected back on that after. It was, it was an exhausting process. Like, that was one of those evenings I remember just going home, just going, whoa. That was, that was kind of that Joseph Smith after the revelation moment where, where that uh, you're just tired physically. It, it kind of takes it out of you. And I remember thinking and coming home and telling Tiff that I was taught today how revelation really works or really can work we're willing and um, and I'll, I'll never forget that feeling and just that kind of that moment of just looking back and saying well how did that all unfold and realizing that it was months in the making the the talks that I read the scriptures that I studied the uh, the discussions that that Tiff and I had had uh, even um, some of the family uh, experiences that we were going through all were a part of this process in preparing for this one moment. And that it was just a testimony to me that revelation happens where it's most needed and where it's going to be felt or effective. The Lord is aware. He is in the details of our lives. And that brother needed that at that moment. Um, and I had to be ready for that. I had to I had to go through whatever I had to go through in order to, to be in a, in a space where he could be taught. And that teaching was going to come through me. And, and I don't say that in, in a, I don't want to brag at all or anything like that. It was in, when we talk about um, the Lord's love, that's how, that's how it works. That's how we connect. And again, this is, kind of goes back to that whole concept of the church of these are individuals that you know, I don't know if I would ever hang out with or be with or support or serve or whatever. And yet we are connected and the Lord makes something out of that through that process. Hmm. Well, I really like that because I think we can translate that over from your own personal experience as a bishop. And we see on a general level these men with, I mean, cumulatively oh, <laughs> hundreds, yeah, of hundreds of years of experience. Yeah. I do believe that it is, uh, as you had described, just the preparation of months prior and discussions you'd had with your wife, things you'd read. And so when we look at the brethren, we know that God is speaking to them. We, we trust that, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also, there is preparation through a lifetime of experience. And we should not discount that as members of the church. And I think even beyond that, 
uh, we see that, you know, in, in what other organization will you find 15 men with the, the varied backgrounds and careers? And I mean, there's so much intelligence and experience there, and yet they have to come to a unanimous agreement when it comes to anything uh, policy. Right. <laughs> Or, you know, the proclamation that we heard yep. from the prophet this past general conference, that that all had to be a unanimous decision from those 15 men. And I think that in and of itself ought to tell us if that group can come to unanimity on these decisions with all their experience, we need to trust that there's, there's a lot to that and trust that God is in those details as they're making those important decisions that impact us on a church level, but also on an individual level. It's really one of the miracles of the church. It really, really is. Like it is, uh, it is one of those moments and, and you know, there are discussions like oh, yeah. hefty discussions, I mean, right? Like, <laughs> and like elder O's. Yeah, mean. right. Like they're they're going to speak their mind. And, um, and yet, uh, when you, when you, look at those men and, and you, you see their experience. And, and I think that's one of the things that I always go back to is, is like even with policy and, and what is, is happening and, and even the changes in policy that happen fairly quickly sometimes. Like it uh, is that they are dealing with so much more than, than I can see. That concept of a global church uh, that is really significant in its service and its capacity and its its um, influence in the world um, and even though we're a very small number the influence is there and uh, and you know they're they're looking at it from that 10,000 foot level and we're just down here in the weeds just trying to you know go see our ministers <laughs> you know or go see our ministering families and um and I think uh, we have to just keep that perspective of what are they, what are they really dealing with, and, and those decisions, yeah, it's they're they're going to to make decisions based on the information they have, and sometimes that information shifts really quickly in, in today's world, and it's okay, it's okay, like ultimately, again, this is it's it's about the difference between doctrine and policy and. And is it helping me come to Christ? And how can I, how can I take whatever it is and just get closer to Christ this week? Mm -hmm. Actually, that really brings up a good point because when we're talking about prophets and revelation, I think we have to define doctrine and policy and culture because I, I know you've seen this in your callings that people get tripped up when they don't know the difference between those things. If you can share some working definitions of what doctrine versus policy is, and I mean, culture is a little bit easier maybe to define, um, but how understanding the difference between those things can help us deal with the changes that happen in a living church. Yeah, I think it's a, it, it may be the, one of the biggest challenges we have in the church right now is is understanding these three different areas um, and and where the revelation, if you will, or the inspiration is actually hitting. Um, and doctrine to me is is very very simple. Um, 
it's uh, based on the atonement, it's based on um, some very specific principles, faith, repentance, ordinances, baptism being one of those, and, um, and then enduring to the end, which is just an eternal loop of those principles of just going through that process. Um, outside of that, I think uh, just about everything, I think there's probably room for argument in some of this, but really in most of this, it, it ends up being in policy. And I think what we're seeing is that the, I mean, the, the manuals of the church are disintegrating. Like they are getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And it's because the, the church is going, uh, is trying to get, I think, us as members to focus more on doctrine and less on policy. It's one of the hard pieces because if we live our life in doctrine, it almost feels too simple in a lot of ways, right? Um, and so we tend to try to get to policy because it's more concrete, it's more, uh, it's more defined, it's more task-oriented. We are such a task-oriented people. And, and policy really is about checking off a lot of boxes. Um, you know, did I do this? Did I get this done? Did I, uh, it, it really, we tend to live in policy. Um, I think one of the, the big dangers is when we move from doctrine to policy and then we go from policy to culture. And, and when we live our life through the culture, uh, that's where we really trip ourselves up. It's where we tend to um, put ourselves on higher ground than other people when we start to see those things that, that tend to put people off as members of the church. Um, and I think, that's where, uh, I think that's where a lot of members tend to spend a lot of time. And uh, we tend to spin our wheels and we do a lot of, uh, for lack of better terms, fluffy stuff. It's, it's stuff that is on the, on the peripheral looks really good and it, it makes us feel good that we accomplished certain things and that we did something a certain way and that we got accolades from other members of the church and we, you know, we did, did all of this and it makes us feel so good, like we're really succeeding at something. Uh, and if we look at that and if we are living through the culture, then we've, we've kind of missed the boat. We've missed where, uh, where real change happens, um, where that deep-seated deep-rooted testimony lies. And, and it's, it's not that you can't have that deep-rooted testimony and still do some cultural pieces. Um, but uh, if we tend to start living our life through the culture to get to doctrine, we've got to change that. We've got to live the doctrine and then participate in culture if it's, if it's beneficial. Mm -hmm, that makes mm -hmm. sense. So I absolutely agree. We do... <laughs> we get so... Uh, just wrapped up in the peripheral mm. and um, the the doctrine as you said it's a pretty short list you can find the doctrine in scripture in the proclamations of the church mm -hmm. and the united voice of the brethren mm -hmm. uh, am I missing anything articles of faith yeah that's pretty much where core doctrine is found and I was reading that policy is the church's best attempt to apply doctrine, yep. which again, uh, with the changing world, looks a little different um, at different times. 
but it can get confusing when we make changes and it can kind of give people whiplash they if if they think that this is a doctrine like oh it was a doctrine that we had three hour church and then they're changing it to two yeah. <laughs> or what happened a, right yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it was a doctrine that um the the high priests and the elders were <laughs> separated yeah. and then they merged us wait i mean those are maybe lesser important examples but recognizing that that doctrine core doctrine is a short list policy is the church's best attempt to apply and live doctrine uh, and will change frequently based on the needs of the current time but also recognizing that policy and I'll add practice just because it's a policy doesn't mean we can be flippant about it like practice would be word of wisdom that is a salvific principle that if we don't live the word of wisdom even though it wasn't always in place we can't receive the ordinances and covenants. And That's so, about the preparation for your next ordinance, right? Right. Yeah. So as members of the church, we need to be able to understand and define these things so that when something changes, uh, it doesn't throw us off. What should we do as members of the church so that we have a better understanding then of these things? One of the things that I think we're touching on with this whole concept is the, the concept of of the paradox, right? That there has to be opposition in all things. And um, I mean, that statement in the Book of Mormon is a, I mean, it is a foundational principle of the Book of Mormon, that there has to be opposition in all things. And it doesn't say that there can be, it says there has to be. And, and that's the paradox. The paradox is if there's opposition in all things, that means anything that we're up against, anything that's going to, to help us in life is also going to have something that could hurt us, right? And, and so policy versus doctrine is a very interesting paradox because policy changes, doctrine doesn't. Um, policy can be... Um, non, you know, it, it can not even connect you to God at all. And it could also take you to all of the ordinances and everything else that the gospel uh, offers. And so um, it's, it's one of the, the, I think it's actually a principle of, of how our Heavenly Father interacts with men um, or with all of us is um, that he, he created the church to be what it is. And maybe that's the foundational faith principle, is if we believe that the church of Jesus Christ is the, the only true and living gospel on the, on the face of the earth, he created it perfectly. Any way you cut it, he created it exactly how he wanted it. Because he could obviously have done it differently. And he created it in a way that makes us think and makes us wonder and makes us challenge each other and makes us um, go through the process of a paradox. And that is, that is becoming like God. Understanding and, and knowing how to get to truth is, is what makes God, God. And we have, to, we have to go through that same process. We have to be able to go through that and say, okay, maybe 
you know, the, the church and the brethren changed a policy that was seemingly an important doctrine. Okay, how am I going to get to the truth? Because that's what I have to do. I have to, for myself, I have to go through whatever I have to go through, understanding the information, understanding uh, the, the whys or the hows. Um, and ultimately, if I, have to, if I have to understand that, I have to go to the source of truth in order to fix that in my mind. And I think that's, that's how the Lord created it. I think he was very intentional in creating it that way because it, it gets us to think differently. It gets us to interact differently. It gets us to a place where we, we look to him for truth in all things. I love that. I was thinking of the talk by Sherry Dew. Uh, I don't know if it's titled, Will You Engage in the Wrestle? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think you're absolutely right that in order for us to become, we have to engage in the wrestle. And the church is set up in a way to help us become. And so there, there will be the nuance and the complexity even within God's church. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's built that way to, to rub off the rough edges and to, to drive us to our knees so that I mean, people will like to say, oh, you members of the church, you're just blind followers. You just listen to your prophet and you just, you just do whatever he says like sheep. But because of some of the difficulty surrounding the change, changes mm-hmm. that are made in a living church, it does require us to think for ourselves in order to maintain you know, as we look at the, the depth that's necessary, I think we have to be willing to go there. And it's not easy. Um, Eugene England, uh, in, in his, it's kind of a, a well-known uh, discourse called Why the Church is as True as the Gospel. He, he stated, he has a couple of quotes in there that I think are very pertinent to this. He said, life in this universe is full of polarities and is made full by them. We struggle with them, complain about them, even try sometimes to destroy them with dogmatism or self-righteousness or retreat into the innocence that is only ignorance, a return to the Garden of Eden where there is deceptive ease and clarity, but no salvation. Uh, I think, uh, you know, (laughs) the concept of returning to a a Garden of Eden where you have some understanding and some knowledge, but no, no struggle is something that um, it sounds so nice sometimes. And yet salvation doesn't come there. Salvation comes from the struggle, from what the Lord intended this life to be, which is a test. And a lot of what we've talked about tonight is, it is part of that test. It's the imperfections, it's the, uh, it's the change, it's dealing with individuals that we normally wouldn't deal with. It's looking to leaders that aren't perfect and never have declared themselves as perfect. And yet we put them on these pedestals of perfection. And, um, and that's, part of our, that's part of our struggle. And that's okay. It's okay to struggle with it. It's okay to dive in as long as we are focused on the doctrine, on what it is that the Lord is actually asking us to do, which is to come to his son and to use the atonement and to find 
that uh, that love of man and of God through the ordinances and you know all of those pieces that are really quite simple when you step away from all of the noise and the distraction uh, and so I think I think that that kind of sums up what what the Lord's trying to get us to do is to struggle and and there's a lot of change there's going to be a lot more change I mean it just is going to happen it, it has to happen in order for the, the, the world to be in a place where Christ can come and that's going to come through a lot of chaos on the world side and a lot more clarification on the church's side. Thank you for sharing all of that. Brad and I have been kind of scratching our heads through some of this discussion <laughs> as, as we've been trying to <laughs> figure out how to verbalize some of these um, definitions. And because as, as complex as this topic is, it's even more difficult to communicate. <laughs> it is. And it's... It's one of those uh, discussions that I think, um, I think we need to have in the church. It's a discussion that we need to have in our homes. Uh, our kids need to have these discussions because they're going to hear it uh, throughout their life. And if they don't have that opportunity to dive deep and to get their own testimonies of, and to understand the complexities of, of revelation and prophets and, and everything else, then they're, they're going to be ill-prepared when the, the opposition comes and there's going to be opposition. Yeah. Um, and it is a school. It is a school of love. It, in fact, uh, just to finish up with that uh, quote uh, by Eugene England, he said that Mar Martin Luther, with prophetic perception, wrote, marriage is the school of love. That is, marriage is not the home or the result of love so much as the school. I believe that any good church is a school of love and that the LDS church, for most people, perhaps all, is the best one, the only true and living church. Not just because its doctrines teach and embody some of the great and central paradoxes, but more important, because the church provides the best context for struggling with, working through, enduring, and being redeemed by those paradoxes and oppositions that give energy and meaning to the universe. It's how the Lord designed it, I think is what he's saying. He's saying the Lord was very intentional in how he created the church and how he uses ordinary common old common sticks, old sticks <laughs> to, to guide us and direct us in, in, in where we need to go and how we need to get there. And if we can simplify our thinking enough to see it, and if we can stay close to the doctrine and not live through... Uh, policy or, or even worse culture, uh, then all of a sudden we start to see our Heavenly Father and our Savior and, and our relationship with each other uh, in the church very, very differently. We're coming to a close here, Brad, and I just so appreciate your thoughts. But I wanted to share this quick quote. It says, even in the church, said President Kimball, many are prone to garnish the sepulchers of yesterday's prophets and mentally stone the living ones. Why? Because the living prophet gets at what we need to know now and the world prefers that prophets either be dead or mind their own business. <laughs> so this is actually from a talk given by President Benson. He wasn't the prophet at the time. But I see this mentally stoning of the prophets happening a lot in our day. 
because truth is much of our of what our prophets are saying is out of line with the social norms of the day while that shouldn't be surprising it's fair to say that it's easier to to sustain a prophet when you agree with him but when you don't it takes a lot of faith to be obedient so that's kind of a long way to get to this question but in your lifetime what direct blessings have you seen come to you as the result of following the counsel of a prophet? This may be a little bit of a leap, but let's, let's go with it for just a minute. Um, you know, one of the things that we are asked to do as members of the church, um, and even more so as, as leadership in the church, is to attend meetings. And a lot of meetings. My dad was, was a just a, an amazing man who, uh, who taught me many things, but one thing he did teach was, teach me very specifically, was that our leaders are going to ask you to attend. And 80, maybe 90% of those meetings, you're not gonna get a whole lot out of. But the 10% will change your life. And uh, I've, I've taken that and really tried to, to live by that, hopefully faith that that, that was true, because I've attended a lot of meetings in my life. And yeah, 80 to 90% are pretty hard to get through. <laughs> uh, but uh, those meetings come from the, the brethren. Like they're setting up that structure and, and it's policy, right? That we have state conferences and that we have, uh, that we have our ward councils and that we have these, you know, that, that we meet together often, which could be considered doctrine. And it could also be considered culture. And so you have to think through that. But I know that my testimony has been strengthened because I was at a meeting that changed my life. And I didn't, I, you never know when that meeting's gonna be. I mean, that's the hard part of it. So if you're not there, you don't know. And, uh, and so I've chosen to, to attend. And, um, and like I said, a lot of times I come home and it, it's one of those moments where I'm like, okay, that, that may not have changed my world, but I was obedient. And then there's those meetings that I come home and I go, I would go to a hundred meetings to get to that one. And, and I think that's, that's kind of the epitome of, of I think, that um, concept of, of not blind obedience, but of intentional obedience, of knowing that it's going to happen. Maybe not knowing when, but knowing that it will. And, and those moments change your life. Well, to wrap up, and again, thank you so much, Brad, for your time and your courage in having this <laughs> conversation with me. But why are you still rowing and choosing faith in the restored church of Jesus Christ? Uh, I think we started this conversation with the word remember. And, and I think that that is the, the key word for me, is I have to remember the experiences, the, the opportunities I've had uh, to learn and grow and stretch and um, so much of who I am and who I want to be is simply because of the church in my life and the gospel in my life and 
most importantly, the relationship I have with my Savior, uh, the relationship I have with my, my wife and my kids, and that um, when I remember those things, um, it becomes very simple. It's not hard. Um, all of the, the noise, all of the um, questions that could be asked seem to melt away when I just remember when I remember the feeling I had on a trek as a 14-year-old boy when I knew that I had a Heavenly Father that loved me, uh, when I think of the trials that have shaped me and I've seen the Lord's hand in my life, um, when I remember those things, it's simple. It's not difficult. Um, and, and that's what keeps me going. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.